You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information on this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 17 is Carrie Ockrey, who sang for the Seattle band Hammerbox back in the early 90s. And we are right now here listening to When Three Is Two from their second album, their major label debut, Numb, from 1993. We'll be talking to her about another song from this album, No. And we're going to move to the band that she led after this called Goodness. The song is called Cozy off of their second album, Anthem, from 1998. After that broke up, she had a solo career. With three albums released under her name, we're going to talk about the song Reflection off the first CD, Home, from 2000. And finally, we're going to listen to a song by The Rockfords, which is a side project. It's a band that she sings for with some of the members of Goodness and Mike McCready from Pearl Jam. We're going to hear the song Coat of Arms off their self-titled CD from the year 2000. Carrie's got a big voice, a lot of ideas, interesting things to say, and in fact, if you'd like hearing her voice here, why don't you check out her podcast, which is called Between You and I, the Bad Grammar Podcast. And here we go. All right, I'm here with Carrie Akri. Thank you for doing this. Sure, thank you. And we're going to go through songs from each of your big eras. I mean, the eras, some of them are kind of short. This is Hammerbox, which is the thing mm-hmm. that got you on the map, did not last all that long, just kind of exploded after two albums, right? It did the prerequisite five years. I think that okay. every band has five years and then something happens and you either survive that or you don't. <laughs> gotcha. And then we will move to Goodness, your band after that, and to your solo career, and then play a little from the Rockfords. Was that your only band, the Rockfords, or was that a side project of everybody involved all along? Oh, it was definitely a side project. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, Mike's Mike's got Pearl Jam, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> He's kind of busy. <laughs> Just that little band called Pearl Jam. <laughs> You'll be there waiting. It happens. It happens. The side project becomes the main project when things explode. But I guess they've gone past their five years. They probably are. Yeah, they're way beyond five years. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump to the, not quite the beginning. No was the song you picked from the second Hammerbox album, 1993. The album was Numb. Do you want to give a little intro to it before we jump into it, what it's about, what people should be listening for? Yeah, so Numb was our second record. We had put out a self-titled record on CZ, and then we were signed to A&M Records, and Numb came out on A&M Records. And No, for me, was a song that just shows like a pretty similar, that's probably a darker time. I think that that grunge era was really based a lot in probably more somber feelings. It's always one of my favorites. I love the intro because it's just so bombastic. And then it goes really melancholy, and I love all that stuff. And it was one of uh, James's favorite songs, and he was our bass player who passed away this year. And so it's just something that kind of sticks in my mind. Yeah, that intro, that intro, it sounds like it's just a totally different song, that you're doing a little hardcore oh thing, and then, oh, yeah. okay, no, it's, it's uh, something that is recognizably Seattle or whatever.
tell me a little about the, you were the singer. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that the other guys would get together and pretty much finish a song and then you would be presented to you and you would put lyrics over it? Or were, how did it actually work in terms of when various things happen, at least with this song in particular? Well, with Hammerbox, that was my very first band mm-hmm. I had ever been in. I think the guys had been in bands before. So I was brand new at songwriting. And so you're correct. Like a lot of the times the guys, while I was in the room, would be hashing out music. And that music inspired me to write the melodies and the lyrics. So it was a very together thing. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't had any experience really putting together like a song structure. So I very happily was great to just sit there and listen and like elicit whatever emotion I felt like I needed to express. And so that was actually a great way to start for me too. Well, and a lot of bands like that, you can kind of tell. Like REM to me is always one, or even Zeppelin is always one that you can tell like, okay, this was a self-contained instrumental that somebody then sang on. Oh, yeah. But yours, I can't tell that so much. And that's a good thing for me because it sounds like an actual song and not like an instrumental that somebody just sang on. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, we were really together, I think, on, I mean, I didn't sit aside and be like, you call me later when you've got the music done. (laughs) I mean, we really sat together in the same room. And it had to match up, you know, like it had the feeling and everything that that music itself elicited came out in the melodies. It really was like based off of the kind of music they were making. So it wasn't something like they would hand me something later and say, here, write something to this. I kind of feel like I was on that emotional ride as they wrote music. And then out of that came lyrics and and melody. So I'm glad it seems like that, too. And it comes off that way. Well, and there's a unity in this with the stylistic content, particularly because of that intro, it makes it sound like we're a badass hardcore band. <laughs> and then it plays a song that's no actually singable, but it's established mm-hmm. that thing. It doesn't come back. I'm, I'm kind of a little surprised that they, I guess there's other parts in the song that are some of the transitions that are not chordal, that are just like, like little riffs. Yeah. I guess by this time, well, I, I'll return to the unity between the lyrical theme and the music, but just in terms of the tone of the music, like this is recognizably Seattle grunge in that, just within the verses, you've got the kind of nice part part, and then we're loud. Like, was that a self-conscious? <laughs> well, I definitely feel like, I mean, that style was in the air, but I also feel like it's the age. You know, you're in your early 20s, you're angst-ridden, you don't uh-huh. even know why, you know. It all kind of lent itself to that kind of music. I think we were very different from maybe some of the other groupings in Seattle, because Seattle had like several groupings. I mean, there was sort of the contingency that was, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, mm-hmm. uh, even Girl Trouble, Fastbacks. These are all kind of people who knew each other, grew up together. Nirvana, I think, folded into that, but they weren't from here. And some would say that they didn't feel accepted in the first place. Mud Honey is a huge local, mm-hmm. kind of part of that contingency. And then there was other factions like The Gits, Seven Year Bitch, Us, and just thousands of other bands. There's Sweetwater was totally different and from a whole other part of Seattle. And so, fascinatingly enough, there was a lot of different bands going on, somewhat different styles. But everybody, I felt like, was having the same youthful experience, again, which is kind of pretty angst-ridden. But Hammerbox was literally like four people from four different places who had moved to Seattle. I was from eastern Washington State. Harris was from Oregon, Dave was from Kentucky, and James was from Tennessee. All of those people were extreme music lovers, maybe different, but all of them loved rock. But you got to like the Northwest, and there was definitely um, a style that everybody was enjoying. And, and our music, funny enough, has those elements, but it's also kind of eclectic in my book. And you've got a female lead singer, which you know you didn't see a ton of at the time. Well, and one that can 
pull off a rock voice that you're, you know, you could, you could be the new Stone Temple Pilots singer. They're looking for somebody. Uh, nice. Oh my God. How crazy would that be? Good idea. Well, I mean, I'm a singer singer, you know, like I spent years like in choirs and taking lessons. So I'm a singer by trade, you know, not a guitarist or any of that. Like I've later picked up those things in order to write, but I'm at base like a singer. Although being in choirs and taking voice lessons is not necessarily lead one with it, you know, no. to, to doing some of the, were they, did this hurt your voice at times doing some of these yes. things? Did you, did you change your style over time to stop? Was it just because you were playing against different instruments or just a conscious attempt to save your voice by not grunging it up that much? Well, one, it was kind of a part of that time, but going into it again, first band, ended up singing like that because it sort of lent itself to that. But like touring on that, I definitely, like I lost my voice. We toured Europe for a few months and lost my voice because I wasn't trained to sing over amps. And I ended up training with a friend of mine, Greta Harley, who was the only person who was like, I'm going to help you sing around guitar amps. You know, like there's nobody who trains you to do that. They're all very classical. And so when you're dealing with volume and small clubs and shitty PAs and things like that, there's a whole training around not hurting yourself. You know, you can train to scream and not hurt your voice and do guttural things. And at the time, no, I didn't know any of that. And I did lose my voice at some point. And then I probably quit smoking right around the same time. And like, again, it was one of those things where I was taking my voice very seriously, but also was really young. Well, if you're playing in those clubs, whether you quit oh. smoking or not, <laughs> I know, barely matters. <laughs> It's so true. And even if somebody teaches you to sing over amps, you really end up using the method of just forget it. You, you know, you just have to don't hurt your voice, like Uh back off. You're not going to get one that the PA's crap. The guitar player's never going to turn down and you just have to save yourself. Like, so if the audience is screaming, we can't hear you, it's sort of like, I know. (laughs) Isn't that a tragedy? But I'm not going to lose my voice over it, you know? I would be hoarse at the end of every single gig when I was in college around that time. But there's many more problems with my voice than than you're alluding (laughs) to. So, Uh, yes, it's hard to uh, restrain oneself in the moment to not... Yeah. Well, that's a big part of the fun too, right? You're expressing yourself. You know, it's not like I would get up there and be like, now I have to be robotic and controlled. And you can be aggressive about that too. Just finding ways to uh, master your instrument and still express yourself the way you want to. But you're right. Not wake up the next day like, you know, like, I'm a frog and I can't talk. I would always laugh that I ended up sounding like Brenda Vaccaro every morning. Like, hello. Well, you know, I'm all, you know, <laughs> just everything goes down like two octaves the morning after. <laughs> Well, that would be in keeping with the thematic thing that I wanted to point out. So it sounds like you're talking in this about escaping from someone who is on heroin, is abusive. What's going on exactly here? Or is it sort of nonspecific purposefully? To me, that song, No, is really about what I was seeing happen around me. Uh There's so much myth-making around people and aggrandizing like the scene, like it was so cool and... But to me, it was heavy and sad. And I've never been like a hard drug user, but I watched it happen around me. Mm-hmm. I had people passed away around me. And to me, it was just sad to watch. To me, that was sort of like, you know, whether or not you make it, I'm going to survive this, which sounds kind of cold. But there was so much romanticizing of it all, too. And I'm like, that's not romantic. That's going to kill you. And so you'd see that kind of peppered around you and in the scene. And then, you know, even if it wasn't close to you, then you'd hear about it because Seattle was such a small town. And so it wasn't ever really that far away. So a lot of the song is just about watching all of that go down in your scene. So I understand most of the lyrics from that perspective, but the Mm -hmm. end, I asked you again, you said that I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. What are you wrong about? Or is it just the person you're attacking that thinks you're wrong? What is? Right, it's denial. You know what I mean? 
you're the one who keeps telling me like, you don't know Gotcha. all of these denial things that people say to you. And you just realize your friends like falling away from you, you know, or drowning away from you. And so there's nothing you can say to someone who's, you know, maybe thick into addiction, like, no, 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 you know, you don't know what it's like or all of these things. And then I think that that line too, and just the song around it is very drowny kind of thing. Like I'm falling down a well. It's like, I'm falling away from my friend. I can't help. Part of what makes the song kind of sexy and sizzly and of that era is that it plays on some of these tropes like as soon as i hear hardcore like i picture you know people shooting up with hard drugs or something right, there's, there's no right. necessary connection between the two obviously heroin does not make you feel like you need to go down to down to down to down on a guitar there's a, in fact it would more make you stop playing guitar altogether and right <laughs> sleep the rest of the day but yet you know so that you can have that atmosphere in here but it's not i'm waiting for the man it's not Velvet Underground. It's not glorifying drugs. It's like an anti-drug no. thing, but musically sort of playing on that trope. Well, our situation, like a lot of people's situation, was you're caught up in the whirlwind of success out of this scene. So I think the music going, the back and forth of that music, like the intro to that music, identifies with a lot of our friends. I mean, a lot of people were into punk rock. I mean, some of this stuff is really based, I mean, it's the gamut. It's sure. anybody who loves like funk, Led Zeppelin, the Stones to hardcore punk rock. A lot of our friends came out of like punk rock. And so, but that song to me is so herky jerky. Like the intro is so like hardcore because you're just withstanding a somewhat meteoric rise, right? You're like, hold on for dear life. Here we go. And then, you know, at the same time, the verse goes into kind of a trippy, kind of laid back, sit back, like you're so in some sort of drug den a little bit because that's kind of what it feels like. I mean, you do see and live through the gamut of things that you're experiencing, what you see happen around you. And it was that complicated, I think, too. It was, and you know, in your 20s, you're just sort of riding the ride. You're like, well, I'm discovering myself and oh, God, that's happening now. And, you know, you're sort of surviving and experiencing it and hopefully getting through it. And a lot of it's just also just badass exciting. You know, there's power in that kind of music that you want to be as well. I feel like Hammerbox was always a group of people who wanted to be powerful and good, you know what I mean? Good at what you do and complicated at the same time. But there's a lot of desire to just be powerfully good at what you're doing, at the music you're creating. Now, was there, I saw it, so, so Nevermind got, it was 1991 that it got popular. So that was even before, this was band was already going for a while, so before that thing exploded, right? You said this is five years, so. We were pretty young, so we formed in 89. Mm-hmm. I feel like right in the thick of things really kicking off, right before Nevermind, like, went explosive. So we were signed when all of that was in its full explosion. You know what I mean? I guess that would make sense. That, that That's when people were getting signed <laughs> in Seattle. But I mean, in terms of interviews, you know, it was peppered into every single interview you ever had. Like you may be getting interviewed as Hammerbox, but every question was going to have, do you know, Kurt Cobain? <laughs> do you know Mud Honey? Do you know? You know, you're constantly talking about your scene because it was such a focal point. Well, so did that play into the actual construction of the music? Because I could very easily, if somebody released this song a few years later in another part of the country, I would say clearly that verse, you know, with the quiet, Mm -hmm. loud thing was written self-consciously. I know, you know, when I moved to Austin in 1995, I was like, I have to take advantage of the fact that, you know, of course, this is after the boat has really sailed, but I have to somehow channel my (laughs) eclectic style into something that is recognizably alternative rock. And I want to, Mm -hmm. even though I'm going to keep playing my acoustic guitar, I'm going to have somebody else play a big distorted guitar like Bob Mould over it. And that'll be the sound, the new sound. And, you know, so I can say, 
of course, that was a reaction to Nirvana and people like that being popular. Like, that's what I thought would get me more gigs or whatever the fact. But does this verse, the fact that you did the loud, soft thing, was that a reaction like, oh, this is, we, we need to have something that, you know, have the same accessibility and, you know, be, or, or the record companies included, encouraging you. I guess, where, right. where did these kind of things come from? Well, you would never do that. I mean, folks in Seattle would never do that. It was so <laughs> snarky and anti. You would never be like, oh, let's write a song like Nirvana. I mean, you'd kill yourselves. <laughs> like, it would be so uncool to do. Not because you didn't love Nirvana, but you'd be like, everyone was very consciously and I think smartly aware of not being cheesy and not being, I mean, write your own shit. It's like, you know, it was pretty egotistical enough that sort of like, I rebelliously am going to be myself against what's so popular. Even if you loved Nirvana and all of that, you would never in your lifetime say, let's write a song like Nirvana. Let's write something to make sure we're popular. It was more even like rebellious about that. Like we're just going to be fucking good and write our own stuff more so like, no, we're going to write it how we would write it. And those influences come from like James is a huge music lover of like rock and things like that. And Dave was a massive lover of well-constructed music. And he's a Robin Hitchcock and oh, yeah. a whole bunch of other really based out of real music appreciation. So almost at a snobby level, we were very like, oh, fuck, no, I'm not writing a song like that. We're going to be us. And that's going to be so good that we will beat everyone. <laughs> Well, yeah, and there's certainly enough elements in here that like this stuff that's not, I mean, even just the main intro that is F sharp to B, then jump up a half step G to C, like this back and forth. It's Oh my God, yeah. I mean, that could be Harris too. Like right. Harris to me as a guitar player is one of my all-time favorite guitar players. Like that stuff seems complicated, but to watch him play, it's like nothing. It's like he's floating over tissue or something. It's just crazy. And I think that those guys came in. I mean, you're definitely surrounded by music that's heavy. So the scene style sure. was heavy, but complicated parts come from, I think, those guys' experiences and their their influences that they loved a lot. But no, I could just see the rolling of all their eyes going, oh, hell no, they would never copy. I mean, at some point, we'd even have to cut, if something sounded like something like, shut up, don't even say it. Like, cause you could kill yourself that way saying, Oh, but that sounds like, Oh, but that sounds like something else. And I'm like, well, at some point it does, but you have to let yourself be innocent and just write what you write, you know, be unconscious. Sure. So it's more osmosis. That's just what always confuses sure. me about like why a scene would have a common sound because I never really feel any natural unity to any of the scenes that I've been in. And let's say it's just me writing my own stuff. You know, I'm sure I'll go out and see other bands, but. They don't have any more influence on me than the stuff that I'm hearing on the radio or the stuff that I'm hearing that was written 30 years ago, you know, that I'm actually listening to more. Well, I think it's interesting to watch scenes from areas all influenced by like their area, their isolation. Nobody went to Seattle, you know, like if you were driving or touring for a while, there were no clubs. I ah. mean, if someone was on tour, they bypassed Seattle. I mean, you were kind of isolated up in this corner. And for a bit of time, even though Seattle's had a reoccurring music influence and ha people have come out of there over decades, I mean, there was a time period where nobody went there. You know, it was just like kind of a dead little ghost town. Nobody had clubs. Uh, but you can think of other places that might have had a little bit of that, like Minneapolis had a huge music scene with the replacements and mm. lots of folks or Athens GA with REM. I mean, where the fuck is that place that, you know, like Athens GA is not the capital. It's not, you know. Little bergs, I think, that are private and isolated can really explode with creativity and 
come up with a sound that is maybe based out of like your life experience, the rain, the the darkness, and lend yourself to writing whatever you as an individual are going to come out of you. But I think it does have an influence on you. And so like all around us, I think people were of the same age. They were the same angst. They were these kind of like guitar, you know, heavy chords and patterns that people were using they hadn't used before that really spoke to like how you felt, where you lived and... But then again, I got to say, there were so many bands that weren't necessarily all like Sweetwater was way more to me, more British, kind of more like Stone Roses or Ride or there was Candlebox had like the heavy feel too, sure. but they weren't even friends with any of those people and almost resentfully. So there was just a lot going on. So I'm always amazed by how much came out of Seattle and how much variety was there. All right. Sky Cries Mary, trip, you know, oh, that's yes. totally amazing art, like trip, hop, you know, all sorts of stuff, like but polar opposite, the posies, pop, you know what I mean? It's all equally as popular too. And that's what I find pretty cool. So turning to your activity after that, so this mm-hmm. band explodes, <laughs> was that a, just a personality yeah. thing? Okay. I told you like every five years you either implode <laughs> or move forward. We slowly... I think again, like the pressures of success can kind of ruin a band too, or, and you either handle that or you don't. So James actually left first. And then we kind of had like an internal struggle. Like I was wanting to learn how to write more. I don't know that there was necessarily patience for that. And I just felt like there wasn't going to be a lot of room for growing. And so like a crazy 25 year old, I mean, Hammerbox had a, guaranteed two record deal, which is unheard of. And I left after the first record because I was, because, <laughs> you know, naively had total confidence and was like, forget this, I'm out of here. And I remember our lawyers slash managers calling me, like, what are you doing? You're an idiot. You know, like you're ruining it. You know, like you'll never get this again. And I just didn't feel that way. I sort of felt like, what are you talking? I'm not willing to feel like shit. I'm not willing to be stagnated and I need to grow. So I'm boldly leaving. You don't want to just fire everybody and call the new band Hammerbox, but it's really goodness. It's really the same. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was never going to do that. I was never, there's lots of fealty. You know what I mean? There is loyalty in, in an absurd, immature way where you're like, nope. I mean, I don't think we almost ever were going to consider getting another bass player. I mean, I think when James left, you just get really like, no, it's, this defines us. This is who we are to change it up. And I'm, and, and a lot of times I think that's immature just because. You're like, some people are going to come and go and it doesn't have to dissolve everything. But at the time. So yeah, I left and was like, forget it. I'm going to start my own thing, which ended up being goodness. Yeah. So that's the next one we're going to listen to, which is off the second album, Anthem 1998, the concluding tune, Cozy. What do you want to say about how this came together or how the writing on this differed from the last band or this song in particular? So this is one of the first songs I ever wrote. This is something that I wrote and brought to the band. And so for me, goodness was such a great opportunity. Like I started writing. Danny and I co-wrote a lot of the music and then Garth and Fia also would chime in. But really it was my opportunity just to start writing a ton. And cozy for me, it has so much to do with like dreams. The bridge is really a dream I had and it's just exciting to do. It's good to sing on.
The song before this, it comes out of a, I mean, the whole band is kind of brighter and poppier than Hammerbox. Yeah. It doesn't have that hardcore element to it, but it's still got the big wallaby guitars. Was that self-conscious? I mean, I know when you became a solo thing, as we'll hear on the third album, that was a big jump away from that. We were going to use keyboards mm-hmm. all over the place. What was the thought in terms of when you were looking for people? And it was this just, this is the kind of Hammerbox-like environment in terms of having one guitarist, having one ba- you know that that you were just comfortable with, or I think that's just a general formation. Uh-huh. You know, that that's pretty basic formation. Everybody goes through. I knew I wanted to be a rock band. I did not want it consciously to be like Hammerbox. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to have a little more space to sing. I wanted to write, and what I write's different than what Hammerbox would have written. And I think adding two guitars does give it power, and we wanted that. But you know, otherwise, the basic structure of like bass, guitar, drums is pretty generic. Adding Garth, part of it was because Danny really wanted to have 
a second guitar player that he could play off of and mm-hmm. have a buddy and just have that element within a band too. Those guys were heavy into, like a lot of guitar players are, into getting their sound. I mean, again, like I'm not primarily a guitar player, but just like the gear or the tone. And, you know, they were really just into honing like the specific kind of guitar sound that they wanted. And then the band started out with my brother as the drummer and Mary Ellen Cooley as the bass player. And so I kind of went through one of those beginning forming a band and having to change it experiences. My brother was in another band, Citizens Utilities, at the same time. And so he went to go play with them. And Danny had asked me if I would consider Chris Friel. And what's funny about that is, again, small town Seattle. I knew who the Friel brothers were from college, like before I was even in bands. And I kind of considered them pretty boys. And I was just hell bent on not having, no way was I having like some sort of like butt rocker pretty boy in the band and just had a lot of like attitude around that. And Danny convinced me to let Chris try out. And what I love about it is that in Hammerbox, when we would write, I literally never looked at the drummer. We'd also get in arguments, things like that. So I literally would have a poll between like Dave and I, you know, like I didn't, I never looked at him. Sorry, Dave. Now Dave and our friends, but <laughs> I just never engaged with the drummer. And when Chris came to try out, we were playing and he just was staring at me nonstop. And I kept thinking, what the hell is he looking at? Like, I was so uncomfortable. And I finally asked him, I'm like, what are you looking at? And he was like, I'm looking for you to tell me what to do. And I was like, Oh. And so in that moment right then, I was like, he just schooled me. Like, that was so, I respected that. I was like, oh, a musician who gives a shit about what I have to say. He's, you know, and I instantly was like, yes, he's in. Loved that. Thank you. I almost felt like I had to apologize. I was like, oh, well, you know, let me get on that. So he joined the band. And then my brother actually told us about Fia. And I really at the time was like, I want a female in the band. You know, I'm used to being the only girl amongst all males. I want to see what it's like to have a girl in the band. And Who, who can sing? Who can sing back up? <laughs> oh, she's amazing. She can do a harmony like that. I'm terrible at harmonies. And, and she's a great singer unto herself and a great bass player. That also morphed our sound and brought more of a pop to it as well. I mean, she's had her own bands. And she brings her own style to the table. And so, yeah, so the sound that I was playing in morphed big time due to those people's influences and my desire to have a little more pop and room for vocals. Now, when you're saying this is one of the first ones you wrote, of course, you were writing melodies and lyrics before, but mm-hmm. this is the one that you actually brought in the chord progression, right? Or Yeah, like actually had written on guitar. Okay. So there's like peppered through like the first record and second record. There are just, there are songs that like that I just wrote and brought to the band and then they took it. So you wrote it as a chun chicka chicka like a little strummy thing, but then they yeah. added the whole. I mean, the bass, as you're saying, the bass totally dominates the verses here with this yes. this movement here. It kind of establishes what the counter melody for the song is. You know, against yeah. the vocal here. Well, and that's what I liked. I mean, I barely learned how to play guitar, so I'm like, here's the basic structure of the song, and here's you know vocals and lyrics. You take it now, and really, those guys imprint and change and morph a song with all of their talent on it. And I love that. I love that. Like, I'm not a control freak about, I don't already know ahead of time every single thing I want on a song instrumentally. I kind of love going, well, here's a little, you know, piece of something, do do something with it. And you didn't feel like you needed to, like, be playing an acoustic or be playing the rhythm guitar or something yourself to, like, hold it oh, down. Oh, hell no. Direct- <laughs> no, no. I mean, I have in the past, have played keyboards and guitar in, in the future and very much like, I just want to sing. And I want to run around and I want to hone that kind of performance rather than have another instrument I'm playing. 
I keep trying to get a band where I can just sing and run around, but I end up, no, no, I just got to hold it down. And kind of, <laughs> Why is that, Mark? What's that? <laughs> hmm. There's maybe one band or two that I've ever been in where I was not the guy who would like count off the tempo, which usually you'd want to try to get the drummer to do that. And eventually, like if I work with the drummer long enough, then they'll be comfortable with all the tempos and like you could rely on them, but at least to get them started and for our, you know most of the rehearsal purposes, it would be just like, yeah. okay, I know, well, as much as anybody, how fast yeah. this song is supposed to go. When you're saying that Chris was looking at you to tell him what to do, is it that kind of, you have your hands free. Do you find yourself directing, you know, this is where it gets loud. This is where it, at least in rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm a bossy mofo. No, now I'm really bossy. I'm like, I don't care if I play anything. I'm like, no, stop, quieter. Don't cut that off, you know, like. I'm very bossy. But no, Chris was really teaching me musicianship. He had been playing mm -hmm. since he was nine. He had been in a band with Danny, Rick, and Mike McCready and Burko in Shadow when they were all like nine and 11 and playing metal. So they'd already been in bands as kids. And so, the, I mean, the Freels have been like playing music ever since then. And so what I've respected and appreciated is that I was getting to play with real musicians who had experience and knew how to be a band together and were teaching me how to like engage and express what do I want out of the song. And they were being respectful about it. Like, what do you want us to do? What do you need here? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. So I feel lucky that, about that. The Hammerbox song had a, a nicely planned structure with well, <laughs> you know, well-balanced instrumentation. But Lots of parts. Even just having, yes, even just having two guitars and having them stay tasteful enough when it's not just the case that one is strictly rhythm and one is strictly lead. That's not the way it was here, right? I mean, everyone's respectful about like, don't be a jackass. You're not going to, it sounds bad if you're all playing all over each other. Uh -huh. You want to be tasteful. You want all the parts to fit together. And our thing was like, the end goal is the song, not you and your guitar yep. or you and your bass. Like, you know, cause I, then it doesn't sound good. I'm like, if it's all of a sudden imbalanced, then it doesn't sound good. And so the goal is, making the song good. And everybody, I think, in our band was really respectful about it. Like, what bass part is the best? What needs to lead? No, nobody had egos around that because that's really your downfall if you do that. Now, when these backing vocal parts come in, like in the bridge, when you had all these little hey yeah yays and whatever, is that the kind of thing that just like all the other parts is coming naturally in rehearsal? Or is it you saying, hey, I hear something here, do something? Oh, no. That is Fia all day long. I mean, literally, her backup vocals are a whole nother instrument, and that is 110% Fia. I never, ever told her what to sing and was just seriously constantly blessed with like everything that came out of her mouth. Those are her parts. Those are her thoughts, her ideas. And all of a sudden, you'd be like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Again, I'm not a good harmonizer. Like Someone has to really show me the harmony, and then I could do it. She would make up things that were just amazing to me and bring it as part of her talent. So was that the same thing in Hammerbox that I, you, you know, you got a fairly prominent Dave, the drummer, mm -hmm. doing backing vocals on a lot of stuff. Was that just kind of where he felt something should be, then he would put something in or was it a little more yeah. you as the vocalist directing things? Okay. No, no, that would definitely be like Dave saying like, oh, I want to sing something here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or I want to put something over the top of that. And I like a lot of that. Again, I was really young and new. I personally didn't know enough to say not only do I know what I want to sing, but I know what you want to sing, and I want you to do that. Like, I didn't have that kind of experience. I might boss someone around now, like <laughs> but I didn't at the time. You know, I started in children's choir as well. And so harmony, maybe because I was not the soprano singer, I learned 
harmonizing was like the first thing that I learned. Right. So it's like always the thing that when I write something, like I'll come up with five vocal parts immediately. Oh, and it'll have to you. be like, okay, which of these do we want to actually have to bother to teach somebody or, or <laughs> so to actually write something and like not thinking that just to give somebody else the space to come with their own harmonies. Is like I have to make an effort to do that. It's not a. <laughs> yeah. See, I very purposely like to gather and surround myself with amazing musicians just to see what magic will come up, Uh right? Like I will be responsible for, here's the song, here's the lyrics, here's the reason why I wrote it, the the emotionality of it all, the theater, you know, like this is why I wrote it, here's all this. But I want the magic of like, let's see what you four would do with this. Go, you know, and do as you will and we'll see what happens. Now, how much with these two songs we've heard so far change when you actually got in the studio with a producer? Were the arrangements pretty much You'd already worked it out and it's just the producer's job is just to capture what you're doing or is it the producer getting in there and directing and like, I don't know, let's, let's uh, tamp down on this part and they both sound very well produced. <laughs> so yeah. to what extent did the producer actually do that? <laughs> well, that's the producer. So the, no was Michael Beinhorn produced the Numb record and I think it was all about the performances. Uh-huh. I mean, it's definitely about a sound because he was very known for the kind of sounds he would get out of a band, but he was also extremely rigorous about the performances. Like he's kind of renowned for beating the crap out of a drummer, but he also, for me, taught me a ton about putting into a performance, like just teaching me about recording vocals and the emotionality you put behind that and going extra because on tape, it's like you want to go oh, 110% because that way you get 100% on tape. And just so many lessons about recording vocals and experiences. So for Beinhorn, it was really about performance and he knew what kind of sounds he wanted. For Ted on Anthem, he already, again, was someone who had a kind of sound. You know, his is much, I think, tighter, you know, a little poppier edge to it. I mean, he definitely knew how to get crisp, distinct sounds. And the tough thing about Anthem was that was the second time we recorded that record. So we had that song down by the time we recorded it with Ted. So... The whole record you re-recorded. The whole freaking record. It was that experience was when we were signed to Lava Atlantic, they felt like the first recording with John, they were like, oh, one, they were looking for singles. And that's another nightmare story. And then I don't know that they felt like the sound of it. I mean, again, when major labels get into the production of records, it's such a sketchy area and questionable because I don't necessarily think that a lot of them know what the hell they're talking about at all, and they don't have a lot of backbone. So unfortunately, we had to run that gamut and re-record the whole thing with a producer with a bigger name. So this Goodness 1995 through 1998 album, which is the thing that I find alongside Anthem on Spotify right now, mm-hmm. is that the previous recordings? <laughs> or yeah. is that that Okay, so that's not the Anthem versions. That's you got both versions are up and available. All right. We don't own it. And so well and that that too is like a collection of everything including these days that record which we consider should have been our second record really, not Anthem. Because it's way more you can tell like songwriting style, it's like the second step in experimental writing and not the kind of record that seems shoved into being a glossy commercial record. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? And that's what majors want. You know, they want something that they think is going to sell. So yeah, Cozy is much more like production. It's definitely got Ted's finger on it. But also in Cozy, like when you go to record it that big, we got the opportunity to like add things and make it grandiose. And um, I think it trails out with the sound of frogs, you know, which we recorded. <laughs> and like, you know, I asked for, which was a big new thing for me was like, I want the sound of breaking glass and I want, you know we got to make it bigger and more uh, theatrical. 
in a larger studio recording. Well, yeah, I did not let the whole thing play out, but there is on since it's the last song in the album. Keep going, Mark. Yes, one, keep going. <laughs> one minute and fifteen seconds of crickets. Oh, it's <laughs> of, massive or frogs. frogs or whatever that it's is. All frogs, okay. yeah. Which is funny enough because that's from the first recording. Ah. Is we were out at this place north of Seattle where there was a a bog like next to it. So the frogs were so loud that it would keep you up at night almost. But it's also a really cool sound. And so in a playful moment, we were like, let's capture that. Let's record it. And then we used it. Well, I guess moving to the third thing. So was this again, was the end of this band a matter of your label experience? or? Oh, a part of it. I mean, again, five years into it, we had been signed to Y Records, left that, went to Lava, Lava dropped us, then we went to Immortal, then I can't remember, we got dropped from something else. And all the while, that's really hard on a band, and we were touring, and again, what pressures are on, personalities either implode or move through it, and everyone just got really burnt out, like feel left, again, the bass player leaves first, <laughs> and she was going to have a baby, and I think everyone just got really burnt out. And for me, that felt like a natural segue into doing solo music. So I went and did that. So we're going to play one off the first solo album, which was 1998. So it's only two years after at least the release time after the Anthem album that we were just talking about. The song is Reflection. The album is Home. Mm -hmm. Totally different sound. Was this just a really, I'm not only going to do something different, I'm going to do something (laughs) that's not just stylistically different. It's almost marketed to a completely different audience. Well, emotionally, that's how I write music. So Uh it's extremely emotional. So I went with my honest emotional writing ideas. And for me, it was, I needed to be quiet too. You know what I mean? It Mm -hmm. was like, it's extremely personal music. It was a natural step away from rock and bigger music because that's not how I was feeling. And consequently, that's not how I was writing. But Home was still an extremely collaborative record. Like amazing people played on that record. I forget who played on it, but uh, like Evan Kang, who is a well-known like violin player. He's crazy talented. Reggie Watts is on this record. So so who does these primary keyboard things? That's Reggie Watts. Okay, okay. Yeah, is a lot of it. There's also Tucker Martin produced the record. How lucky am I? Like he was such a, I feel grateful to work with him. He was so sweet and he's just so talented and he's huge now. So I feel lucky that I got to work with him. He invited friends in to play like stand-up bass on Gray. There's an amazing piano player. Reggie actually took Reflection and Humdrum and completely changed how that song was played, both of those songs, and put his stamp on it. And again, like I love that. I love to like toss one of my songs into a pool of amazing musicians and see what comes up. I'm always confident to say like, I don't like that, but I've yet to have to say that. So Reggie played on stuff and I was like, oh my God, I hadn't even thought about a Rhodes. I hadn't even thought about like playing it that slow. So he was doing the primary Rhodes part, but then Mm -hmm. also programming the little drum machine slash synth bass and other little noises. That might've been Tucker because he was real well-versed in that kind of thing too. Hate only comes from an outside place No, I think that's wrong Cause I've seen its face Staring back at me Looking so familiar And I try to forgive But I just can't forget And the thing I don't want Is this pain and regret It's going to end up replacing All my good memories See, there's a sad reflection that stares at me Wounded eyes and a lack of sleep It's my voice, I hear singing words to 
So yeah, slower, I guess all of the song. I mean, if, if I, I want to, I know I was trying to push you on, don't you guys just sound like Nirvana because you're from Seattle? And, but you always stuff more lyrics into songs than... than Me? Well, yes. <laughs> I have a lot to say. Yes, you're an obviously very introspective person. And, and this song, you know, is straight up, that's what the whole thing is about. Oh, is you're, you're gripping, well, tell me your take on what this is about. 
it's a forgiveness song, a self-forgiveness song. Solo Records was the first chance I ever got to kind of reflect back on the years with those bands mm-hmm. and check in with how do I feel. I probably had a lot of regret or like self-confidence was kind of low. And that's what music's great for is it's so therapeutic. And so reflection's really about, you know, you can really self-hate a lot. And there's such a great need for self-forgiveness for any of the things that you did when you were young and you're just trying to learn and you make mistakes or you hurt people's feelings or and to try and not beat yourself up about it too much. So it's a song to myself, really, as music often is. Yes. <laughs> Almost magically. I mean, I listen to words, will stumble onto things or listening to something and be like, there'll be a line where I'm like, wow, I really needed to hear that. That's crazy. I wrote that like 10 years ago. <laughs> Well, I like, so I'm just looking at some of the particular lines here. I, I try to forgive, but I just can't forget. And the thing that I don't want is this pain and regret. It's going to end up replacing all my good memories. That that's the kind of, of course, you know, having regret. It's just the fact that you're dwelling on these things and like mm-hmm. that to the exclusion of other yeah. stuff is what's persisting. Yeah, you're missing out on the present. If you're spending all your time thinking about the past, you're completely missing out on the present, which may be providing you with opportunities or good people or loveliness that you deserve, but you're not recognizing it because you're spending all your time thinking about what should have happened or what could have happened and I didn't do that right or I'm angry and you're replaying crap in your head, which is useless. You know, it's just an Uh illusion. The past doesn't exist. So. Well, even just the replacing the good memory. So it's not just ignoring the present for the past, but ignoring parts of the past that you should be focusing on for for the rest of it. And I, yeah, yeah, like most of the things that I think the most about from when I was 12 years old or 18 years old are stupid things that I said that I wish wish I didn't say. And like, why does, why am I still replaying that goddamn thing? <laughs> oh my god! To do with anything? The replay. I'm so. I'm. There's so many people who are well versed in just rehashing shit in your head, just replaying it, what you wish you would have said, and you know that's such a futile action. And all the while, that same maybe great things happened, and that's what you should focus on and let go. A lot of letting go of what you cannot change. <laughs> and then, so through wounded eyes and lack of sleep, I think when you're sad, you look wounded. Though for me, those are more okay. about tears. That's more about crying, puffy eyes, and you know your eyes are tired, and they're just you know you're exhausted, and the wound that that you know does to your eyes really just you look affected, wiped out. Was there an intention in, in connecting the feel of the lyrics and the music when you get to the "Don't Give Up on Me" at the end of the chorus? Then it goes into this crazy jazz chord transition that is unlike anything. <laughs> <laughs> earlier in your career. I mean, that was that uh, was part of how you wrote it, right? Or was that? I think that's Reggie Watts, yeah. <laughs> Which, yay, I love it. I mean, again, I mean, anything that's like, I don't want to stay in the same thing, you know? Like, I'm not like Lita Ford where I want to just play rock music my rest <laughs> of my life. Like, God bless her. But I don't. Like, that's not where I'm going as an artist. And I want to learn new things. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> that's my motto most of the time. <laughs> so can you characterize the progression? I mean, we're not listening to the two subsequent solo albums, and I know you've been working on some stuff since then, mm-hmm. right? Since the last yeah. solo album was 2007, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's the the progression like there? Can you characterize your whole uh, progression for the last dozen years in two sentences? <laughs> no problem. Well, like Invitation was a whole other host of experiment with like, there's loops in that one. Uh-huh. There's, I had like this crazy Casio keyboard that had patterns. A couple songs are written off of patterns. So you were yourself delving into more of these, messing around with these things rather than yeah. just having Reggie do it. 
Oh yeah. Well, home Reggie played on that. And then, you know, Reggie's went on to do amazing things and I changed people up. So next record, it was a whole, I purposely go pick people to experiment with. So I had a whole different producer who liked doing kind of electronic music and then had a completely different band. My brother actually came back and played live with me, but had a keyboard player more actively in that. The stuff being very singer songwriter, there was like Probably what you're saying, I was more active about like some of the uh, like supporting elements, like having a choir on Not Yet or doing a song. Invitation is based off of a loop that a guy gave me and I wrote the whole song off of it. Even the cover, you know, like dressing up more like I think in that photo, Bootsy Holler did both of those record covers, just playing with different colors and softness and looking different and enjoying kind of that theater part of it as well. It's completely different from home. And then doing Last the Evening, which is so much more me and so much more piano. So a lot of those songs, if not the majority of are written on piano and gathering a whole nother host of people like Steve Fisk did that record and then had Mark Pickerel on it and uh, Jared Clifton from Radio Nationals and had a bunch of people come play on that. Things are always introspective, massively introspective, but just when you tap into a whole new idea, you realize how little you know, or you might see something else you want to try and... I think that's just kind of the path that I'm on. The new stuff I have is, I think, going to be more theatrical in the sense of I'm still wrestling with it. Like, it's not going to be your normal, like, band, you know, Uh around it. I mean, there will be band members, but I need something a little more jazz or ethereal around it, like combinations of, like, how Florence and the Machine does records to Bjork a little bit, to a jazz band, to a fully raw, like, intimate like Johnny Cash's last record when he did all those covers or Feist, there's types of sounds that are going to match the emotionality of these songs. And I've got to figure out what that is. And this time around, I'm having a partner on it who's going to know a lot more about orchestration. Uh huh. But the songs are written. And now it's really about like, how are we going to record them? And what will they look like live? It just, I don't know, you'll hear it when it has a tinge of theater to it, but nothing like, you know. Well, even Reflection, just to return to the, the song people have heard, mm-hmm. you know, unlike the previous two songs, you don't have to worry about these group of five people or four people are going to be on stage and they have to sit through mm-hmm. that. And so they, they each have their part and they more or less play through the whole song. It was funny because I did orchestra and programming keyboards and things in high okay, school yeah. before I formed an actual band. So when I formed an actual band, I, you know, I think I said to the lead guitarist, you know, some of the people that were auditioning, like, think of yourself like the oboe. In an orchestra, right. the oboe doesn't have to play throughout the whole thing. The oboe can sit out and then the oboe part comes like, and nobody would yeah. really get that. And in fact, I pretty much converted. So now very soon subsequently, like, yes, if you want your band members to be happy, they have to have their space and this is our sound. And maybe, you know, the individual guitarist can decide that he wants to play with different pedals or whatever, but like, that's the sound of the band, but you don't have to care about that on the solo CD so that no. you've got this Rhodes thing and the drum machine slash bass because the keyboard bass and the kick drum, the fake kick drum are just locked in. Like they never play anything apart from each other. I don't think. This is another element you can have fun with is like, there's that version you could play live or you could do the record live with all band members. Sure. sure. Oh yeah. And recreate it. Cause then. We have part two to your um, expression. So we've got the record. You can go enjoy that, but live it's going to look like this. And I love that because it's part two of what you get to create. When you did this one live, were the people kind of taking, so there's a part, I think of some of the arrangement, the parts of this arrangement is kind of Peter Gabriel-esque, like the David Rhodes mm-hmm. stuff, the, on the his last couple, late 80s, early 90s stuff, uh, where there's 
a guitar that's kind of it's the atmospheric guitar that it's doing mostly it might as well be a violin frankly yeah. the, the way it's sustaining things and then you've got in addition to the Rhodes thing that's a very prominent throughout the song you have a couple of these other kind of effect keyboards like you have a piano that's tinkling here and there and doing just some transitions you have a very high synth that's very much like the guitar filling in the space to make it more theatrical to make it more I don't know. I, th- I associate it with TV now because, because <laughs> they do that all over the place. Nobody cares in a song for a TV show or a movie that it's a band. You're not staring at five people <laughs> that have to have their, you know, then when you see Peter Gabriel plays live, it's five or nine yeah. or however many guys and they have their role. Like, is that kind of the transition that you'd have when you would do the song live? Would you guys have the person that's doing the atmosphere guitar part and the person? Yeah. Yeah, well, because I wanted to be on stage with people, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't want just me in a machine. So, but all the, again, all those people are really tasteful, they're talented, and they would play to the song. I mean, it's Viva the Dictatorship. It's not a group effort. It's my stuff, and I've asked you to play on it. And that's as far as it goes in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, me being somehow dictating everything that they do. Again, I would say, like, my friend Sean, who played keyboard, did a lot of these effects. I literally gave him the record. I gave him home. He played on home live and said, here, I've got a show in a week. Go learn it. You know, so do what you do. But the live band was all made up of people filling out all those parts. Like we had guitar, bass, keys, drums. For imitation, I had my friend play horn and had a backup singer. So, and and I went back and listened to that. There's a live record of us playing that on Kefala. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, and I was going to say that's so great that for all of you, it seems like all of your bands, not Hammerbox, but all the, the other three, your solo band and goodness and the Rockfords that there's a live album up from yeah. seemingly approximately the same period that these were all yeah. <laughs> recorded in the early aughts. Well, at the time we were close friends with Brady Lar, who had Kafalo records and he has since passed away, but that's what his record label did was only live gotcha. recordings. He had done a bunch of Pearl Jam stuff. So there's a lot of markers. You should go back and listen to some of that. The ones at EMP around invitation. Like I listened to that last year and like emailed everyone in the band. I was like, I forgot how amazing those shows were and the musicianship I thought were great. No, that's so great to be able to, you know, you put all this work into creating the live unit and then like yeah, you play your little tour yeah. or play twice as in the case yeah. of some of my projects. Well, we, well, with Invitation was the first time I ever didn't have a job and basically for a year did all of the work around Invitation, marketing, booking, everything. Ah. Um, had my own label, like did everything. And it was really exciting, but you learned how much, you learned that there's a glass ceiling. If you don't have a lot of money, you can only go so far. I mean, promotion costs money. Touring costs money. And as a solo person, unlike a band, you're kind of on the hook for most all of it. As opposed to like a band who could say, we're all in it together. We'll all sacrifice in order to go on tour and we'll all make money to get ourselves on tour. As a solo person, you kind of become responsible for all of that. And it's financially, it can be really difficult. I mean, people done it and there's ways to do it but i think i after a year i had a level of burnout that was just big or as a band you could have band business meetings where you decide who's going to do what and then nobody but you does anything exactly because nobody does it as well as you right right (laughs) (laughs) nobody's as good as you that's what i say nobody's going to work as hard for me as me so in keeping with that i know it says on your wikipedia page that you release it mentions your own label but then i see that each of these three solo albums is on a different label officially i did not i mean i appreciate the money you could make but i was like the level of effort i mean the second one i'd had a kid so i had my son i was not going to go run the marketing and everything of a record i didn't have time so i needed someone to put it out and 
I wouldn't say that that was a great experience. I think some of those folks on that label were awesome. And then some of it was extremely frustrating. But in the end, I'm really, I'm grateful for it because life was very different at that time because I had, you know, a son and was married and working. And so it wasn't like I was ready or maybe even willing to go on tour or do things like that. And by the time last the evening came out, you know, the music industry was vastly different and changing and imploding. And so things that were in place for like invitation or home. I mean, those records like home sold close to 10,000, at least locally and invitation sold like eight, but there was also things like the mountain. There was a radio, two radio stations that were amazing. KXP, which is still doing great. There were so many things in place. And I think people's mindsets, at least in the Northwest, were still fairly focused on music. And I think there's been a big shift. It's not the same. So this last song that we're going to play, which is Mm -hmm. Coat of Arms by the Rockfords. So Mm -hmm. Again, this is Mike McCready from Pearl Jam. It's Mike McCready's side project. No, this is this is just... Well, it kind of is. <laughs> that's always listed everywhere. That's why you yeah. can get... He wouldn't think of it that way. <laughs> he would feel bad about that. No, it's Mike and Danny and Chris and Rick who are all in shadow uh-huh. together. They got together and said, hey, let's. we'd like to make some music together again. Let's do this uh, band. And it started off as they were just going to have a different singer on every song. They had Ann Wilson sing on something... Or was it Nancy? They had her sing on something, and I I don't know if they had talked to other people, but then they asked me to come sing on something. And then it was like, well, why don't you sing on this too? And then sing on this too. And then it's like, by the the end, uh, it's just all me all day. Yeah, it's just me all day. So it sounds like you're sort of back to the square one in terms of the way that these were written, that these were self-contained instrumentals that then you added vocals on top of? Okay. So now is that refreshing when that's not the only thing you're doing to just do that Oh, yeah. I mean, seriously, after running, you know, running your show is great, but it's exhausting. So at that point, I was like, awesome. You guys, you guys write what you want to write. I'll write lyrics and melody. Like, I need a break, man. So it was perfect. And it was fun to do. And I was really flattered. Mike was like, I just wanted to have you as a singer. And that made me feel really good. And I mean, I've been in bands with Chris and Danny and I've Rick worked with goodness forever. And so I also felt like I got to be a part of a family. And at that point, too, it's just fun to make music. Now, is that project or any of these other side projects or, or past bands, like, are there potential reunions or, yeah, we might record a little more with this group or something? Well, Hammerbox did play to help James out. So, you know, we've recently have played mm-hmm. together and that was very nice and very healing, albeit even though it was sad. But not like you're, that's going to make you want to record another batch of 12 songs with those. James's passing yeah. makes that kind of a moot point. But um, Goodness is actually putting out 20-year anniversary of the first record this year on vinyl. And we'll play some shows probably in the fall. So we're working on that right now. And we've played shows together since. And that's been actually really wonderful. And then the Rockfords, it's, I'm sure we'll play or do something again. It's really just around Mike's schedule because he is, he and actually Danny is doing solo. He's uh, released a solo record. Yeah. They're really busy. And so we're just fine because it is a side project. If Mike gets back from tour on Pearl Jam and, and he's got like five other side bands and says, Hey, I want to do this and get together with you guys. Then I'm sure we will do something. All right. Well, let's play the song from the Rockfords from your, the first self-titled album from 2000 called Coat of Arms. Uh, there's also, I just want to mention because I really liked it. There's a the subsequent EP from 2003 that at least is available on YouTube, people can listen to called Waiting, that I especially hit my little uh, power pop uh, (laughs) nerve center. (laughs) Yeah, that EP is awesome. I love that EP. But this is good too. You said you wanted to do this one, Coat of Arms, because it was especially personal to you or had good memories or something. Tell the story to get us out of here. 
It's so funny how music is very prophetic and I think magical, but you know, my mom passed almost three years ago and the whole song is about how am I going to survive? How, who's going to take care of me? And in a coat of arms, I'll wear, you know, like who's going to keep me standing. And so I just was funny. I, I listened to the song and, and thought, Oh my God, how appropriate. I think psychically that music can be really prophetic for you. And I enjoy that magic. So that's why I love this song. All right. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it.
All right, Carrie. Again, if you enjoyed hearing Carrie wax about things, I would recommend her Between You and I podcast. That's at betweenpodcast.com. And in fact, her most recent episode is an interview with my past guest, Roderick Romero, whom she is friends with. And more immediately, I actually talked for another 15 minutes or so with Carrie about her current project, about recent changes in recording technology in the music industry and how we do things now. So I posted that recording, bookended with the Rockford song Waiting that I referred to that is really great, and also a song from her latest solo album, which is back in 2007, Last the Evening. I put a song from there so you could hear that evolution from reflection to her final recorded work so far. Where do you get these things? Well, it's at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And as you've noticed, there have been no advertisements on this or any of the previous episodes. So the only way that I could possibly get any money back from doing this is if you either go there and, well, you could make a donation. That'd be fine. Or you could sign up for a membership to the site, which covers not only Nakedly Examined Music, but also the parent podcast, The Partially Examined Life. And sign up for a membership there is a mere $5 and will get you the bonus audio for this and several of the previous episodes, and many other wonderful things that you can read about there. So just go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or partiallyexaminedlife.com and look for the Become a Member graphic to see what it's all about. So I've got some very exciting episodes coming up. Jill Sobule is next. Then I did one with Chad Clark from Beauty Pill and Dave Nachmanoff, an excellent singer-songwriter, amazing acoustic guitarist. Now, if you like what you're hearing here, I know podcasting is a passive medium, and for instance, when you watch TV or listen to the radio, you don't feel like you need to do anything. But in this case, with the show still relatively new, I don't have a major network backing me, NBC owned by Viacom or whatever, pumping millions of dollars into letting people know that this podcast exists, so I need your help. Send the link to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com to your friends. Post it on your social media. Another thing that would help if you are an iTunes user, go to the iTunes store to our page there. After subscribing, of course, go leave a nice rating, nice review, whatever you feel comfortable with. And more importantly, if you like the music that you're hearing here, please support the artists. Please go look up some of Carrie's bands. I would especially recommend the Goodness albums. I think those are all just really wonderful. The Rockford stuff is a little harder to get a hold of. I had to get the versions you're hearing here off of YouTube. That's the best that they could provide for me. But whether it's through iTunes or Spotify or ordering CDs or just keeping an eye out for them at the the used record store, (laughs) I hope some of these artists are added to your sonic world, making it a richer, more wonderful place. If you have comments on the show, if you want to recommend a guest, if you want to put yourself forward as a guest, I'd love to hear from you. It's mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And as always, if you want to hear some of my music, it's marklint.com. Thank you. Until next time, this is Mark Lintemeyer signing off. Yeah.